Well, it's good to be with you all today uh, as we celebrate Palm Sunday. Today's message is called Enter the Servant King. Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And, you know, this uh, last week I watched uh, the movie Darkest Hour. Any of you have seen that? Uh, Winston Churchill. Uh, it's a portrayal of, of him uh, in the 1940 as the onset of the war was coming. And uh, it, was, it was an awesome movie. Uh, but one of the things that got me thinking about was living in a, in a time and a, and a political system where you have kings and queens. And how foreign that is to us as a concept. Um, and, and the world of kings and queens, as I was thinking about, about Jesus this week, I was thinking about the way that, the lavish uh, way that kings and queens live and are celebrated. Did you know that the most expensive wedding in history, at least that we have recorded, was uh, Prince Charles and Princess Diana. They got married, and if you converted it in today's dollars with inflation, the cost of their wedding was $110 million. That must have been some awesome cake. Like, I don't know what they're doing in there, but they're doing it right, right? $110 million. And then whenever a king or queen was crowned, I mean, that was just the wedding. But when they became king or queen, they have what we call a coronation. And they did this thing up. They knew how to party. King George, uh, his coronation in 1821 was, to that date, the most expensive coronation that history had ever known. And, and it was 240,000 pounds, and then, so you don't have to whip out your little pound-to-dollar converter on your, on your iPhone. Um, it's today, again, with inflation, would have been $5 million, which in 1821 was in, it would have been insane. They pay this kind of money just to simply crown him the king. The crown alone that they put on his head had 12,314 diamonds on it, valued at over two, $2 million, right? You ain't finding that at Lids, you know? I mean, this thing is, this, this is, they, they would have people from all over the country gather and have this huge processional down Main Street, and they'd usher everybody into these great halls and have these feasts and all these ceremonies they would walk through with crowning him and putting oil to anoint him and, and a scepter and a, and a sword and just bling for days. I mean, this place, they blew it out. When I became pastor here in 2016, <laughs> I got a plastic name tag on my door, and I wasn't even ready on time. Just, what's up with that, right? I just, just, just things that came to my head as I was preparing. <laughs> now, you compare all of this. You compare this with Jesus' coronation in, in Luke chapter 19 today. And you, and you consider, we celebrate Palm Sunday, and, and, and you think about the way Jesus came into Jerusalem, and how did he come? He came the same way he came into this world, humble and lowly. And, and although there have been many coronations with a lot more pomp and circumstance, if you took all the kings and all the rulers who have ever lived, and you took all their power, all their majesty, all their greatness, and you combined it together, it wouldn't even be one jewel in the crown of our King Jesus and the power that he has, the majesty and beauty that he has, and what he did for mankind. This morning, what I want us to walk through is, is three implications of what we see of Jesus in Palm Sunday, and then look at three, three implications of what that means for us in our lives. 
And Palm Sunday, it's, it's always celebrated. It was, the, it was the Sunday, it was a week before Easter, a week before he rose from the dead. We're celebrating Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And to kind of set the stage for you here, uh, for this entry, you got to realize these people, the people of Israel, have been oppressed for hundreds of years. Assyria, Babylon, Rome, Greece, and then Rome. I mean, just being a baton that was passed in oppression. And then here comes Jesus. Now, Jesus is a guy that for many of them is very hard to understand, right, a lot of the time. But here's what they know of this guy that's claiming to be the Messiah. They've seen him heal. They've seen the blind can see. They know that the deaf can now hear, the lame can walk, the demon-possessed are free. And then in his magnum opus, his grand finale, he raises Lazarus from the dead. And they're looking at each other and going, maybe he, maybe he is the long-awaited Messiah. Maybe he's the one that was sent to free us from our oppressors. And finally, his promise will come true. We are, our God is ruling as our king here on earth. Now Jesus, up to this point, has been keeping a lot of, of the truth about him under wraps. But he turns this corner in Luke chapter 19. And he says, the time has now come. The time has come to be announced as king, although what we'll see is it's not what even his closest of disciples ever imagined it would, it would be. So as we look at this triumphal entry, I want us to see three things about our beautiful Savior. Number one, Jesus knew what was coming. He knew what was coming. Look with me. This is Luke chapter 19. All four Gospels talk about this. We'll be pulling from all of them as we go, but Luke 19 is kind of our home base here. Uh, verse 28, this is the English Standard Version. When he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. This is where he's going to enter in uh, as his coronation. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, or the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples uh, saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. And then we skip to verse 32. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. Now, here's the question. How did Jesus know where this cult would be? That there would be a cult there and what was going on there? How did he know that? Well, in a narrative, we always have to be careful. And I was, I was walking with our preaching team through this on Thursday morning. And they were saying, Justin, you're reading some stuff into this text. I said, hey, who's the preacher? Right? No, I didn't say that. Um, so, he's, so as you look at this, I mean, we don't know. The, the narrative doesn't tell us specifically that, that Jesus, you know, he knew the future and he knew exactly where this cult would be. I don't think it's just that simply he had it prearranged. So as we're going to see, he's going to go, when someone goes, hey, what are you doing with our donkey? Right? That doesn't sound like a prearrangement to me. We don't know exactly what's going on here and, and what he knew, but here's what we do know about Jesus. Whether it was that he knew what was coming or his father knew and told him what was coming, we don't know how all that deity, humanity stuff works out, but we know Jesus knew exactly what was coming down the pipe for him. He knew exactly the kind of week he was about to step into. And in Luke chapter 9, he says this, as the time drew near, this is 10 chapters earlier, he, he says, as the time drew near for him to ascend to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. The word picture there, that word, the Greek word there meant to set one's face. Even actually the ESV translates it that way. He set his face toward Jerusalem. He says, that's the direction I'm going. That's where my mission uh, uh, culminates. And Jesus knew that it was almost time. And here it says it knew it was about time to go back to heaven. But we also know that he knew the events that had to occur before 
he went back to heaven. Can, can you imagine what it would be like to know that these events are about to occur in your life? I mean, put yourself in Jesus' shoes for a second. You're about to be betrayed by one of your best friends, that all of your closest friends are going to abandon you, that you're going to be beat, whipped, mocked, nailed to a cross, die in the most excruciating fashion that the most cruel empire in the world had ever devised, and I think the worst part of it all, to be forsaken by his father. And he knew all that was going to go down, but it says he set his face toward Jerusalem, and he went anyway. Now, how did Jesus know specifically that this was the time? Well, as we look in Scripture, we see this was the only time and the only place that this could have happened. As, as you look at this, um, this had to be the year that he died, A.D. 30. Now, there's some scholars that would debate on the exact year, and we don't know for sure, but here's what we do know. If you go back to Daniel chapter 9, there's this prophecy, and Daniel's talking about it. He says, there's just going to be this decree that this king named Artaxerxes is going to make. And then 483 years later, you kind of work through the 70 weeks language that he uses, 483 years later... There's going to be this Messiah who will be cut off as the language. So if you do this math, 444 B.C. is when King Artaxerxes made this decree. You add 483 and it brings you to A.D. 30. This is the year Jesus had to die. This is how he knew which year. Not only that, he knew the exact day. Friday was going to be Passover. And that was the day, what was the, the shadow, the Passover lamb was a shadow of this reality that Jesus was going to fulfill. It was on the Passover day that he would become the lamb that was slain. And not just that day, but also the exact time. The Passover lamb was slain at 3 p.m. And as we know from scripture, that's the time that Jesus died. And not only the exact time, we know that this had to be the exact place. That it had to happen in Jerusalem. Because this is where those sacrifices were made. God said it in the Old Testament to the Jewish people. This is where you will worship me at the temple in Jerusalem. And that's why earlier in his ministry, Jesus, he kind of keeps it on the down low. Like when a, when a demon says, that's the son of God, or he heals someone. He kind of keeps it on the down low because he knew it wasn't his time yet. But that's why I believe when he, when he rose, raised Lazarus from the dead, he knew exactly what he was doing. He knew word would spread quicker than it does today on Twitter. And he knew this crowd would start to form. And they start to go, maybe this is the Messiah. And he knew the Pharisees didn't want him to die until after the Passover because they didn't want blood on their hands on their holy day. But he presses the gas and says, no, no, no. It's going to happen right on the Passover day. And you think about this. That he knew the exact right time at the exact right place, that the exact right person would do the exact right thing so that today, you, sitting in this folding chair in a gymnasium in Soldatna in 2018, could live. Puts a different emphasis on Romans 5 when Paul says, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. He knew exactly when this was going to go down, and he did it. He did it for you, and he did it for me. The exact right time, exact right place. So yeah, I think he knew where that donkey was going to be, right? Child's play. First of all, he knew what was coming, and then secondly, he controlled what was coming. Not just that he knew, but that he controlled it. Verse 31, if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Jesus said, you'll say this, the Lord needs of it. The Lord has need of it. 
That's what, you, that's what I want you to tell them. The Lord has need of it. In verse 32, those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, uh, why are you untying our colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it, just like he had told them. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their clo- clo- uh, cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. So what's going on here? The citizens, the Jewish citizens would have been very used to the Roman soldiers coming and commandeering things like their animals. Hey, we want that donkey. Hey, hey, we're going to take that horse from you. We're going to take that whatever it was. And they would just take these things from them. And, and Jesus here, he says, if, if someone goes, hey, what are you doing with that donkey? You simply tell them the Lord has need of it. Now, when he uses the word Lord here, the, the Greek word is kurios, kurios. And, and the word there, it means a supreme authority or sovereign, someone who's in control, a king, a ruler. And even more specifically, it carries the idea of an owner or a possessor of something. The kurios was the one who owned that thing. So here's what Jesus is saying. If a soldier, if a Roman soldier can come up and take your donkey, what about the one who owns the entire universe? What about the one that possesses all things, that made all things, and therefore is the owner of all things? That's my donkey, right? That's what he's saying. Now, why a donkey in particular? Well, 500 years earlier, and Lisa read the the verse when she came up, in Zechariah 9.9, this is is what the, the prophecy was. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on the colt, uh, the foal of a donkey. Which actually, when we read that in this passage, it's not just a donkey, it's a colt, the foal of a donkey. Matthew 21 just says, this is to fulfill that prophecy. And so, what we see here, is a God, a Jesus, who is powerful enough to fulfill every single prophecy that was made about him, including something that was seemingly as insignificant as getting this donkey and riding it, right? Chalk another one up. Another prophecy bites the dust. John 12, I love it, Jesus' disciples, it says they didn't understand what was happening when the donkey thing went down. Then later on, it like, it dawned on them. I always love the disciples, just a little step slow, it gives us hope, right? And it says later, you imagine, I don't know if they were like reading Zechariah, or just saw a donkey walking across, and like, donkey, oh, like we got, you're that, like you get a, a joke a little bit late, you're like, oh, orange, you glad I said banana. Okay, it's a fruit pun, all right, I'm there, I'm there. It's not just that Jesus knew what was going to take place. It's that Jesus, as God, or you could say the Father through Jesus, he controls the events of history. He, he controls time itself. He made it happen. And aren't you glad that we serve a God that is in control of this universe? That we serve a God who, who is in control of nations and wars and political rulers, a God that's in control of my life, a God that knows how all of this ends, and not just knows, but is sovereign over everything. And and I need to know this. I need to know this in my darkest of nights, when life doesn't make sense, when there is nothing but suffering and chaos as far as I can see, and to believe that there is a God who doesn't just know what's coming, he controls what's coming. And this includes our salvation. John chapter 10, 
And Jesus said, no one takes it. He's talking about his life. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my father. He says, I'm doing what daddy told me to do. And it's not mankind strong-arming me. This is not Satan or sin defeating me. I am willingly giving my life up because I love you. Matthew 50, 26, you remember when Peter, they're about to arrest uh, Jesus, and Peter goes ham on the soldier and chops his ear off? What does Jesus say? He goes, Peter, don't you get it? Like, I could snap my fingers, and Daddy could send over 6,000 ninja angels and just wipe out some fools, right? Like, I could do that if I wanted to. This is not them winning. He knew full well what was coming. He was in control the entire way and willingly laid himself down for you and for me. This is our God. He knew what was coming. He controlled what was coming. And then number three, he humbly submitted to what was coming. Verse 35, they brought it, the colt, to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. So now he's about, he's on this colt and he's about to enter into Jerusalem. Now oftentimes, Kings would enter into a town, and there was a couple of ways that they would enter this town. The first way, they could enter on a white horse. And the white horse, it symbolized war. It symbolized victory. They were coming in, and everyone was going to praise this king for leading them in victory over their enemy. And the other way they could enter in, a donkey was a cultural way for kings to, to enter in. We see that in the Old Testament with some of the, some of the Old Testament kings. But when they entered in on a donkey, it symbolized not war, but it symbolized peace, right? That donkey looked like it's going to start a fight with somebody? No, right? So when they would enter in, and, and this is what's really cool. In, in Zechariah 9, there's the prophecy that he comes in on, on a colt. In the very next verse, it says he comes humbly on a colt. Then verse 10, it says he shall speak peace to the nations. Speak peace to the nations. That's why Jesus came. He came on a donkey. And you know the verse, we all know John 3, 16, probably the most famous verse in the Bible. God so loved the world, gave his son. But the next verse, the verse after the verse, it says this. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Jesus didn't come riding in on a white horse. But in order that the world might be saved through him, Jesus came on a donkey because he was known as the Prince of Peace. And he came here to save. He came to restore what was broken, to bring order into our chaos. And he rode in on a donkey. And here's the people's response. Verse 36, as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the ground. Now, when they did this, they're putting their cloaks on their ground. This is a symbolic way of saying, we submit to you. We are placing ourselves at your feet. Now, they, didn't, they knew they couldn't jump into the middle of the road, right? That'd get messy, right? You get stepped on, trip up the donkey. So this was a way of symbolically, as I lay my cloak on the ground, it's a symbol of me laying myself under your feet, and they would do this, and that's why at the time they would take these, their thrones of the kings and they'd elevate them. Again, the symbolism that you're up here and I'm below you. I'm below even your feet. You are the master. You are the authority. And they said, this is our king. He's coming in and we're placing ourselves under him. And then it says they wave these branches. John tells us, he specifically says branches of palm trees that went out to meet him. I joked, that's why I dressed like this today. I'm a walking palm tree. And so what they would do is they, as they come walking in, the culturally, a palm tree meant victory. It meant victory. That's why they did it at Passover time, the victory that God had given them over Egypt. And, and so this crowd, it tells you a little bit about what's on their mind. Victory is coming. 
And this is what then they say. As he was drawing near, already on the way to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. And here's what they say. We've seen all these miracles. We see it's lining up with this promise that you're going to be the Messiah. And here's what they sing. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This crowd is getting geeked. The king is coming, and it's almost coronation time. Now, this psalm that they're quoting, it's actually from Psalm 118, and there's a section of of psalms there. They're called the Psalms of Ascent. And as they would travel to Jerusalem, the believers from all over Israel, they would sing these songs. And Psalm 118, in particular, was called the Psalm of Enthronement, enthroning a king. And they would sing this song. It was the same song they sung when the Maccabees saved the Jewish people from Assyria. And they sing this song. And one of the words is not translated in Luke, but it's brought out in some of the other Gospels. They sing the word Hosanna. You've often heard that associated with this song on Palm Sunday. The word Hosanna means save us now. So they're saying to the Maccabees, save us from the Assyrians. They're saying to Jesus, and I believe the primary thing on their mind was save us from Roman oppression. They're not understanding fully that Jesus had come at that time to save them from themselves, from their own sin. Now to be fair, this, there, is a, there are many promises in the Old Testament that the king is going to come, he's going to set up a political kingdom here on earth and rule and reign over the other nations as uh, seated in Jerusalem. I mean, you go back and I have in your notes Zechariah 14, Isaiah 9, Psalm 2, 2 Samuel 7. They know this king is coming. But that's one day down the road. Today, Jesus comes on a donkey, but he's coming back. And when he comes back the second time, he's coming on another animal. Look at what Psalm 9, Revelation 19 says. Then I saw, here's, here's John's vision, I saw heaven opened, and behold, what? A white horse. A white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness, he judges and makes war. That's what the white horse symbolizes. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. He ain't coming on a donkey this time. On his robe and on his thigh, he has his name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This time, he comes to judge the nations. So you imagine these people, like this is what they're envisioning, coming right now. Like Jesus is coming, and we're ready to go. So, I mean, you ima- I mean, your heart's pounding, your hands are sweaty. Like, what is this going to look like? Is he going to gather up this posse and we're going to charge the Roman guard and take out Herod and Pilate, right? Say you want a revolution. Or, or are you going to just call, like maybe he's going to call fire down from heaven, right? At the end of like a Transformers movie without Shia LaBeouf, right? And he's going to wipe them all out like a Star Wars Like, is that how God's going to handle this? How is this going to go down? What part do we have to play? Well, they didn't understand. I believe their hearts are right. I think most part, as we can tell from the story, they want Jesus to be their king. But they didn't realize the humble way in which Jesus would go about achieving his eventual victory. And then you got the Pharisees who come on the scene. You can always trust them to come in. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Always hating on Jesus. Haters are going to hate. And they say, hey, we realize what you're saying here. We realize that they're, what, they're, what they're praising you with right now, they're claiming that you're the king, you're the Messiah, that you're, that you're God. And then you're accepting that from them? This is blasphemy to them. And they're trying to call Jesus out. And look at what he says in verse 40. He answered, I tell you, 
If these were silent, if these people didn't praise me, the very stones would cry out. I think this is another indication that Jesus understands his, his own deity. That we can see Jesus is claiming to be God. That he accepts their worship. He's not just like, oh, you're right, that is a little over the top. Guys, dial it down, I'm not God. You know, like, it's not, no, he knows full well who he is and who they're claiming that he is. Then he says, if they don't praise me, the stones will start rocking out. I know, I know. All right, thanks, George. Jesus says, I will be worshipped. I, I will be glorified rightly as king. But no one, the Pharisees, the crowd, his disciples understood exactly what that would look like. You see, Jesus came to establish an upside-down kingdom, an upside-down kingdom. And this is, this is what this means. We look at this passage, and we see Jesus is all-knowing. Like, I mean, Jesus, you know, and whether it's him, you know, just trusting the Father to show him what's coming next, or, or we don't know exactly how that worked out, but what we do know is that Jesus, as God, chose to walk by faith, not by sight. And even when he's on the cross and his father's turned his back on him, he says, why have you forsaken me? That Jesus chose to lay that down and walk by faith and trust his father that he wouldn't ultimately leave him and forsake him. And that Jesus here, we see in the story that he's all powerful and he is God. And yet we see that he willingly gives himself over to weak men to kill him. And we see in this passage that, man, Jesus is greater than all. But he humbled himself to serve every one of us. He deserved a better coronation than any king, King George, Queen Victoria. But he came not, as a, not, not, not looking for a crown to be kinged with, but he came on a donkey to die for us. And you think about these three implications for our lives. Number one, Jesus knows what's coming in my life, too. I mean, Jesus knew there's a donkey we're going to go grab. And he also knows before the foundations of the earth, look at what Job 14 says. You decided the length of our lives. You know how many months we will live, and we are not given a minute longer. Think about what Job is saying there. He says, God knew before the foundations of the earth, on April 11th, 1984, Justin Blake Frankino would be born into this world and get dedicated up on a stage like today. He also knew the exact day I would die. He saw my tombstone. He knew the numbers on both sides of the dashes. He knew everything about me. He knew I'd have terrible hips. He knew I'd be obsessed with Sour Patch Kids. Might be part of the reason I have a hip problem. He also knew all of my sins before I ever committed them. He knew I'd be an adulterer at heart. He knew I'd cheat on him. He knew I'd be a jerk at other people at times. He knew I'd let other people down, that I'd be selfish, that I would run from him a lot more than I ran to him. He knew all of that before he even created me. But just like Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem, before time began, he set his face toward me, and he created me in spite of all of the ways that I would hurt him and rebel against him. And he set his face to come to this earth 3 p.m., Friday of Passover, A.D. 30, in Jerusalem, to die. For me, he did the same thing for you. The first implication is that I am fully known and I am fully loved. Jesus knows you. He knows everything about you. He knows the depths of your sins better than you know them yourselves. He, we are fully known, but we are also fully loved. And he set his face towards you, and he died 
before you. Second implication, Jesus controls what's coming in our lives. It's not just that he has foreknowledge. I see it in the crystal ball. I know what's coming down the pipe. That he's in control as our sovereign. And you think about this. If God, who controls the universe, if he knew, was there ever a point in time as Jesus walked this earth that he wasn't in control of Jesus' life? Was there ever a time where he's like, where did he go? You know, what is he up to now? Jesus was, God was in control of Jesus' life every step of the way. And now that Jesus lives in me, do you think he's ever stopped being in control? Will he ever stop being in control of my life? Now that doesn't mean that I won't suffer. That doesn't mean that life won't be hard. Again, look at Jesus. God was not faithful to Jesus by taking him around the cross, by him avoiding the pain and the suffering that he would experience. No, he was faithful to Jesus by preserving him through the cross. In Hebrews 12, it says, looking to Jesus, who for the joy that was before him, on the other side of the cross, before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy and the glory that was waiting for him came through the cross, not around it. And I look at my life, I don't have to be afraid. Not because God's going to help me avoid the hard things in my life. This is not a prosperity gospel. It's that my God will preserve me through the hard times in my life. In Job 24, we have this beautiful promise. Now to him, all glory to him, who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. There's a joy and a glory in Jesus that's coming for us too, but it's not around, it's through. Why does he say he'll keep you from stumbling? Because we're going to take a path that we can trip up on. But the promise is, man, if I started a good work in you, I will finish it. I can keep you from falling with my right hand. This implication is that I am fully held and fully protected. That God has got me right in the palm of his hand. He's not going to let go. He's not going to leave. He's not going to forsake. The last one that Jesus teaches us here, the way up is down. The way up is down. On Palm Sunday, the people wanted Jesus to be their king and defeat their outward enemies. They were picturing him coming on that white horse. They want Exodus 2.0, right? Horse and rider hurled into the sea. They want Rome to be the new Egypt. But what they didn't realize was that the enemy that needed to be defeated was the enemy within. It's our own sin. And see, the way that the king of the universe inaugurated his coronation, a victory... It was not the greatest of extravagances like we see with the kings and queens of England. It actually wasn't by killing anybody else. It was by laying down his own life as a sacrifice for sins once and for all. And you imagine that. Imagine being like on a battlefield and surrounded by the enemy and going, you're all going down. <laughs> now kill me. The way he achieved victory was laying down his own life. It was through the cross. And so we, as followers of Jesus, were called to do the same thing that Jesus did. And he says, take up your cross, like I took up mine. Follow me. Luke 9. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. This is upside-down kingdom and language. What he's saying is, 
in order to save you, I had to die. In order for you to be saved, you have to die too. The only way to a life with Jesus is through death. We have to die to our old self and get a whole new creation, our new lives in Christ. It's not by improving myself. It's actually I die and I become something completely new. The way up is down. The way to victory is through death. The last implication is that I am humbled and I am exalted in Jesus. That I confess that I'm a sinner. There's nothing I can do to please my Father. I deserve death. And so Jesus died for me. And then I died with him so that I could have a new life with him. And my exaltation to glory and joy is found in the person of Jesus. So we celebrate Palm Sunday this, this week. And Palm Sunday actually shadows this future reality that's coming. In Revelation chapter 7, there's this this beautiful scene. It says this, John has this vision of how it's all going to go down. He says, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and here it is, with their palm branches in their hands. Victory! The King has won! And this is the song they sing. They cried out with a loud voice, salvation, victory. We're saved, we're freed. It belongs to our God who sits on the throne, we under his feet, and to the Lamb. I can't wait for this. Believers from all over the world, Russia, Botswana, Papua New Guinea, might even have a few from Nikiski. And we're all there. We're waving palm branches, going nuts, singing to our king. I mean, you guys, can we wait for this day to come? This is coming. This is reality for us. And we're praising our king. Then he's come on a white horse. But how did he achieve that victory? We praise the lamb. His victory was not by killing other people, but by laying down his, whole, his own life. Because before this victory party could happen, he had to die. Otherwise, there could be no one that would be there singing his praises. We would all still be lost in our sin if Jesus did not die and raise again. And so the way forward for us toward this glorious day where we praise him with those palm branches is to trust our king. It's humble obedience. And it's a trust in our God. The way up is down. If you pray with me. And and as we pray, uh, invite the ushers to come up. Uh, We're going to take our offering as we, as we move into this last time of praising our King, the Lamb who was slain. Father, thank you for sending Jesus to this earth, dedicating your Son to the gospel cause. And we thank you that he came, that he died in our place, that even though he knew exactly what was coming, that he was in control, that, that your Son was willing to do your will and not his own And he laid his life down in our place so that we might be free and forgiven. Father, we come before you confessing that we have nothing good to offer you. We're going to put some money in some bags. We're going to offer you what we have. The only acceptable offering is the new life that's been redeemed in Jesus, dead to sin and alive to you. So Father, we come to you as those who have been raised from the dead. And we offer you not just our money, but our whole lives. And our lives are only acceptable because of Christ's righteousness in us. And I pray for those in this room this morning who need to know that there's a sovereign God who knows them, who knows their sin, and fully loves them in spite of their sin, and has fully forgiven them from that sin, and freed them from that sin, and one day has promised them full freedom from the presence 
of all that is wrong and into the presence of all that's right. May we cling to those promises like Jesus clung to those promises that you will save us not around but through. May we have the faith to trust you more. It's in your son's beautiful, powerful, all-knowing, all-wonderful name we pray. Amen.